Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be doing the Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon. Yes. Can you just hear the cheers coming all over the world? What a great week. I love Isaiah. I think we got to acknowledge, Bryce, that uh, a lot of people don't like Isaiah, and I think Isaiah gets a bad rap, and I think that's okay, right? Yeah. It's supposed to be difficult. You know the old story that the missionary gets shot by uh, some ruffian in the back alley, and falls over, and the guy thinks he's dead, and then walks over to steal from his pockets, and the missionary stands up, and the guy's shocked. Like, how did you survive? I just shot you. How did you survive that? And he reaches in and pulls out his Book of Mormon and says, nothing gets through Isaiah. <laughs> so there you go. So hopefully by the time people are done that they may say, you know what? Isaiah's not so bad. It's kind of symbolic. It's not the way we, we're used to looking at the Scriptures. And Nephi's going to say that. Nephi's going to say, you know what? I'm not going to prophesy after the manner of the Jews. I'm going to speak in plainness. And so from thence on, every prophet that follows Nephi speaks in plainness. And then we've got the Doctrine and Covenants written in plainness. And so we grow up with very plain Scriptures. But let me just put a plug out there. In the Lord's most sacred and holy places, he speaks the language of symbolism. And so it really does behoove us to learn how to learn from symbols. If we can master Isaiah, then we can walk into the house of the Lord and get a whole lot more out of the symbolic language in the temple. So tackle Isaiah, learn to get more out of Isaiah. And that's what we're going to do today is we're going to give you some helps on how to get more out of Isaiah. Probably my favorite verse, and we've done this before in the other podcast, Bryce, is uh, the verse in 3 Nephi where the Lord says, I think it's 3 Nephi 23, 1 through 3, where he says, everything that Isaiah said has been and shall be. I think when we read Isaiah, it's just not one thing. It's a multiple layers, and I think that's a really good approach. I also like to say this, if you're in doubt and you're confused, I think a lot of times the answer is Jesus. Yeah. You'll, you'll see Jesus in there if you kind of look hard enough. Because I remind you, back in 1 Nephi 19, Nephi's going to say to his brothers, you know, he's going to say that when I really wanted to help my brothers understand the Messiah, I read them the words of Isaiah. And so, 2 Nephi chapter 11, Nephi's going to say, I love proving to my people the coming of the Messiah. I love to prove the goodness of Jesus, and I'm going to quote Isaiah. Oh, yeah, and I love verse 4 of chapter 11, where he says, all things are a typifying of him. And so, worst case scenario, just assume Isaiah is talking about the Savior, and you'll, you'll be able to get some more meaning out of it. But what I'd like to start everyone off with is there are, if you look at the Isaiah chapters in Nephi, so way back in 1 Nephi chapter 20 and 21, and then we've got Jacob quoting Isaiah in 2 Nephi 6, 7, and 8, and then Nephi gives us a big humongous chunk of Isaiah in 2 Nephi 12 through 24. So if you look at the chapters that come right before and right after you'll find some wonderful little tips from the people who understood Isaiah the best on how to get more out of Isaiah. So let's do one, and I want to point out that every single time Nephi or Jacob quote Isaiah, they throw one word in. So if you'll go back to 1 Nephi chapter 19, 
He's about to insert two chapters of Isaiah in 1 Nephi 20 and 21. But look at the last two verses of 19. I did read many things which were written in the books of Moses, but that I might more fully persuade them to believe in the Redeemer, I read Isaiah. For I did liken. There's our key word. I did liken. And you'll notice he repeats it in verse 24. He says, you can liken them unto yourself. So twice before he puts in two chapters in 1 Nephi. So now go to the next insertion, go to 2 Nephi chapter 6. This is where Jacob's about to put two chapters of Isaiah in. And look at verse 5. In twice in the verse, he says, they may be likened unto you, for you are of the house of Israel. And there are many things which have been spoken by Isaiah, which may be likened. And so then if you'll jump to chapter 11, which is right before the big chunk of Isaiah in 12 through 24, notice he does the same thing. Verse 2, for I will liken his words. And then again in verse 8, now these are the words, and ye may liken them unto you and unto all men. So I would suggest the first thing we have to do with Isaiah's writings and all symbolic writings is begin to say, how is that like something in my life? Now, we've been trying to do that all along. That's what Mike and I try to do in these podcasts. Laman and Lemuel's rejection of Nephi is like our rejection of Jesus. Or crossing the sea is like mortality overcoming the great chaos. So let's practice. Let's jump into Isaiah and find an opportunity that says, this is like that. So I'll go first, and then we'll have Mike go. If you'll go to chapter 15, it talks about a caretaker of a vineyard. And so this one's an easy one. Jesus taking care of me in my life is like a vineyard master taking care of his vineyard. What people who own vineyards do to the grapes and the vines is what Jesus does to us. There's the likeness. And you now have to put yourself in it. I am a growing grape on the vine, and what the vineyard owner does to the vine, Jesus does to my life. So look at verse 2, 2 Nephi chapter 15, verse 2. He does five things. Number one, he fences it. Number two, he gathers out the stones. Number three, he plants it with the choicest vine. Number four, he builds a tower, and then he put a wine press therein. How are all of those like what Jesus does in my life? Well, he puts a fence around. Now, why would a vineyard owner put a fence around the vine? Got to keep out the bad stuff. Now, the funny thing is, The grapes have a tendency to think that the purpose of the fence is to prevent it from having fun. And Latter-day Saints and religious people all over the world often think that God's commandments are there to restrict me, to prevent me. In other words, the fence is to keep me in. But the reality is the fence is to keep all the bad guys out. Heavenly Father gives us a fence to keep the bad guys out. But if you resist it, notice if you read the rest of chapter 15, if you don't like the fence, he'll tear it down, and then you'll be trodden over. 
and you'll be destroyed. But we need to learn to appreciate the fence. Sometimes Isaiah even tells you what he's doing. Like yeah. If you look at verse 7, he says, the vineyard is the house of Israel. And I like how you take it, Bryce, and you say, okay, it's the house of Israel, but let's make it more personal. Let's make it about my life. Yeah, and because I am a member of the house of right. Israel. So going back to verse 2, first he fences it. Second, he gathers out the stones thereof. There is not a stone in the vineyard. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't stones strategically placed somewhere else, but as far as the vine goes, he has removed the stones, which I would suggest is like my life. No trial that I go through is an unnecessary stone. God has removed the stones. But notice what he hasn't taken out of the vineyard, the wine press. So he won't allow a stone to interfere with my growth. But that doesn't mean that everything's hunky-dory for the grape, because I'm not trying to become a raisin here. I'm trying to become wine. And that means someday I have to face the wine press. And no matter what, I just, I just know that the wine press is coming. And so I can rest assured that none of the painful experiences in my life are stones. I can rest assured that it's part of the wine press experience that's going to turn me into what I want to become. I am like this vineyard, and Jesus is like the vineyard master who puts a wine press in the middle of it, but removes the stones. You may want to just mention the other three. He plants it with the choicest vine. In other words, he, he surrounds me with the best people I could possibly surround myself with. And he builds a tower. Now, why would you build a tower in a vineyard? So that someone can climb up there and see a great distance off and give me a warning that danger's coming. Well, clearly, who's the man on the tower? I have a prophet. And so right there in one verse, you can kind of just all of a sudden liken how God treats us to a vineyard master taking care of a vineyard. And there's beautiful imagery there as you read the whole rest of the chapter. That's good, Bryce. I, I like that. That is a great tool in how to read the text. And so in the rest of this chapter, you know, it talks about how they don't listen. They struggle. In verse 10, it says that 10 acres of the vineyard yield a bath and the seed of a homer yields an ephah. It means nothing to the modern reader, but and simply it just is saying that it's not fertile. They're not producing. And why are they not producing? Verse 13, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth. And so Isaiah talks about, well, why? You know, what's wrong here? What's happening? And we get a bunch of woes starting at verse 18. Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, verse 20. And so to Isaiah, it's, you know, you've missed the point. I've put all these things in your place, and, you, and you've missed it, and you've brought forth, verse 4, wild grapes. We're going to see some of this in Jacob 5, but the promise is always verse 26 of uh, the 15th chapter. He will lift an ensign to the nations. He'll hiss unto them. He's going to bring them. He's going to bring them forth. Now, Bryce, there's lots of ways to read 26 to the end of this chapter, and we can really get lost in the weeds here. But I just want to say big picture of Isaiah is he's talking to me, and he's going to bring me home. Yeah, and always liken it. And that's the thing. You've just likened it. My journey back to Christ. But there's so many levels, and so we really could do like a seven-hour podcast on these chapters. I mean, we really could. 
But big picture, I like that. You, I don't know how many times you said, but you said the word lichen was, I don't know, was that four or five times? Six times in between Nephi and Jacob. So it, it kind of matters. I mean, if it's six times in there, this isn't just like a one and done thing. And I also think this, Bryce, when Jesus says, uh, he, he quotes Isaiah 54 in the third Nephi chapter, and then in the 23rd chapter of third Nephi, he, he commands him to read these things. And so I would say this to the listener, and I'm saying this to myself, I think one of the reasons why the Lord said this is because you can't just read it one time. You can't just read Isaiah and be like, okay, I got it. Guy got it, Lord. I know what's going on. I, you know, I've been reading and studying Isaiah my whole life, and I'm still learning new stuff with Isaiah. It's so good. And so I think another reason why the Lord said that is because he wants us to like slow down and chew it, like think about it. And it does tie all, you know, chapter 45 or 40 to the end of Isaiah talks all about the first temple. It's about God taking us home. So let me take you back to 2 Nephi chapter 11. Let me throw two more helps in, and Mike does this so intuitively that he doesn't even realize that it's a scriptural help. And so it's almost unfair the way he does this. But go to verse 8, but I want you to not look. Would you just close your eyes or look somewhere else as I read this, and I want you to fill in this blank. Ready? Nephi says, and now I write some of the words of Isaiah, and whoso of my people shall blank these words. How do you fill in the blank? Most people would say things like... Maybe hear, maybe... Hear, study, read, read, ponder. Now go back and look. 2 Nephi 11, verse 8. He didn't use the word read or ponder or study. He said, now I write some of the words of Isaiah, and whoso of my people shall see these words. That's a fascinating choice of words. You have to see Isaiah. And when Mike says that after a lifetime of studying Isaiah, he still sees new things, that's exactly what he means. I'm seeing this from a different perspective. It's not a matter of reading the words. It's a matter of pondering and seeing the vision, seeing the image. And then let me give you one more help And again, this is why I love doing these podcasts with Mike, because he's brilliant at what I'm about to introduce. If you'll go to chapter 25, 2 Nephi 25, this is where Nephi says in verse 1 that Isaiah was hard for his people to understand, just like it's hard for Latter-day Saints to understand, because they don't know how the Jews prophesied. But I want to point out verse 5 and 6. Why is it that Nephi understood Isaiah so well? What advantage did Nephi have? Well, verse 5, My soul delighteth in the words of Isaiah, for I came out from Jerusalem, and mine eyes hath beheld the things of the Jews. And I know that the Jews do understand the things of the prophets. And there is none of the people that understand the things which were spoken unto the Jews like unto them. Save it be that they were taught after the manner of the things of the Jews. But behold, I, Nephi, have not taught my children after the manner of the Jews. But behold, I of myself have dwelt at Jerusalem. Now notice what he says next. Wherefore, I know concerning the regions round about. Meaning, if you want to understand Isaiah, you need to take a little bit of time and understand what he's talking about. When he talks about a teal tree, you need to understand what's a teal tree. When he talks about the cedars of Lebanon, you need to look up and figure out what are the cedars of Lebanon. Now, I'll be honest, this is one of the reasons you need to be listening to this podcast, because Mike Day is a brilliant 
source of saying, here is what he's talking about. Let me tell you the background. Let me tell you the context. But take that as an example for your own personal life. You'll understand Isaiah a whole lot more if you pause and dig a little bit into the tradition, the history, the imagery, what he's talking about. So when he talks about the destruction of Damascus, if you could do a little bit of a research, you don't need to be a scriptorian. You can find it in Bible Dictionary and a lot of helps. So we've got wonderful resources available. But if you dig a little bit and figure out what happened at the fall of Damascus or any other description that Isaiah is giving us, if you'll do a little bit of digging and know concerning the regions roundabout, you'll get a little bit more out of Isaiah. Now, Mike's about to illustrate, and he could go on for hours, about if you just understand what this twist is, or here's a little insight into that tradition of the Jews, or in Isaiah's day, this meant that, then you'll pull out a whole lot more meaning out of Isaiah. So, Mike, illustrate that. How does knowing a little bit about the regions roundabout you give us a couple of examples, and then I'd love to throw in an example of the beauty of seeing Isaiah in order to pull more meaning out of it. Good. Um, I will say this, Bryce. I like to talk about some of the history and some of these things, and then I'll come to Bryce and I'll say, hey, this is the story. This is politically what's going on. And then in 30 seconds, you'll be like, oh, that's like this. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is like that. And so that's another reason why I like this podcast is you're getting a little, it's like a two flavors of ice cream. I'm, I'm an ice cream fan. So we're going to talk a little bit about politics on Isaiah's day, but I promise I won't do so much that I bore you to tears. I'll post a map of the political lines in Isaiah's day. And so essentially what you need to know is that the kingdom had split. Israel was split north and south. And after it split, uh, they had war. There was a, a lot of contention there. And the kingdom of Israel was teaming up with the northern areas. So for example, the kingdom of Damascus, they were teaming up against uh, the kingdom of Judah. And so because of that, Judah, the king, was thinking, well, should I ally myself with other people? Should I uh, get into an alliance? And so in this chapter, in the 17th and 18th chapter of Second Nephi, or Isaiah 7 and 8, the Lord is telling the king, don't do that. Don't get involved into an alliance with any other tribe or any other group of people. Even though uh, Syria and Israel are going to come against you, just don't do that. And so essentially, in the first six verses, the Lord says, you know what, they're going to flame out. They're not going to get you. But look at verse 7. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. This alliance of these two guys that want to blow you up are just not going to happen. And so in the 18th chapter of Second Nephi, or Isaiah 8, there's two verses you want to highlight. Verse 9, associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. And verse 12, say ye not a confederacy to all to whom this people shall say a confederacy, neither fear ye their fear nor be afraid. Why? Verse 13, the Lord of hosts himself, let him be your fear. So the Lord is essentially saying, just trust me, I'm going to be with you. And so that big picture is the political message of those two chapters. And th that would be something that you would be really afraid of if you're this little teeny country and you think, man, if I could just get another country to ally with me, then we'll be okay. And through the prophet, the Lord says, don't do that. This has application in our lives. Like that's the them, there, then, you know, the political thing. And couched in the middle of this prophecy of don't ally, you get this really interesting prophecy that almost doesn't make any sense. And to me, it's about Jesus, but it's about other things. So what do you do with this, Bryce? How do you apply it, or how do you look at this stuff? So what he's trying to say is, no matter how combined the enemy may appear, 
You trust the Lord. You align with Him. You stick with Him, and everything will work out. And, you know, we can talk about that politically, but we can also talk about a a middle school student who goes to school and feels completely alone and looks around and just sees so many people aligning and there's friends and they, and all I have to do to, to be accepted by those who use vulgar language is to use vulgar language. All I have to do be, to be accepted by those who smoke and drink is to smoke and drink. And that's the message of Isaiah. He's saying, look, if you align with them, it will fall apart. That is not true friendship. And in the end, they will leave you as quickly as they accept you. But if you will align with Jesus, if you will let him in your life, if you will trust that, you'll never fail. And so I think that's just so many applications in these chapters in terms of, look, Jesus came into this world miraculously, and he can come into your life miraculously. I like that. And if he comes into your life miraculously, then he will do miracles in your life because he is a man of miracles. And yet, when men can't explain him or how he helps, you just trust him. And if you let him into your life, all of these other alliances will just fall apart. But he will be ever with you, and he is the one to make an alliance with. I just so many ways yeah. to make application in those chapters. There's so much commentary on verse 14 of Isaiah 7, and I'll just say this, that... Uh, I think that to the people that Isaiah is talking to, what he's saying to them is a child's going to be born, and before this child can eat solid food, you know, we're going to be okay. I'm just going to read these verses. So he's talking to Ahaz, ask a sign, verse 11. Verse 12, Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. Verse 13, hear ye now, O house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. But before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest, those two kingdoms to the north, shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. A lot of people get hung up on that. This is a swarm attack. There's going to be a massive attack. These two nations are going to go down. Was there a child born in that day? And in scholarship, a lot of people say, well, maybe this was Isaiah's child. I think there's multiple fulfillment here. I also think that in verse 14, there's the definite article before the word virgin. So this isn't a virgin but it is the virgin shall conceive. And I think that's a little bit different. To me, this is Isaiah, and he's clearly talking about Jesus can come into my life. I can be threatened with all kinds of problems. There could be something in my job where I feel pressure, or if I'm a young person, like Bryce is talking about, like some of the pressures that they face. But even adults face these tremendous pressures, and um, Jesus can come into my life, and it can be miraculous. And I like that name, Emmanuel which literally is God with us. God can be with us even when we're under attack. And if you think about it, a lot of people live in war-torn countries, don't they, Bryce, where there are all kinds of problems. And I think sometimes, even if you're not in a war-torn country, I think socially we're under attack. And so I don't think this chapter isn't relevant. I think it has perpetual relevance. Yep. 
And before we leave the chapter, can I just come down to a very, very small level? Here's the power of Isaiah. Even though he's trying to give this message about being threatened by such a formidable host that you see and trusting Jesus, there is in verse 15 such a beautiful small lesson. And don't get caught up in the big lesson that you'd miss the small ones. He says, butter and honey shall he eat that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Do you know how you get your children to choose good? They don't need to taste evil and know that it tastes bad. They need to taste good. You don't know when food tastes bad by tasting bad food. You know when food tastes bad by tasting good food. And I think in that one little verse is such a beautiful lesson to parents that when your children taste the goodness of the gospel, the world will naturally just not taste good to them. You don't need to taste evil to know that it's bad. You need to taste good to know that evil's bad. That's just an example of seeing and applying in one verse. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you're ready to shift subjects, Mike, but before we do, can I take everyone back to chapter 16? This is a beautiful example of you've got to see Isaiah. You can't just read him. You've got to see him. In 2 Nephi chapter 16 or Isaiah chapter 6, it's kind of the calling of Isaiah. He says in verse 1, I saw the Lord. Now, like I, any one of us, if we saw the Lord, how would you feel? Wouldn't you be very self-conscious about your own imperfections? And Isaiah is. So he says in verse 5, woe is unto me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. So he uses his lips to symbolize his unworthiness to be in the presence of God. And that's a pretty decent symbol because my lips represent all the evil that comes out of me, the words that I speak. And so that is what Isaiah picks to represent his unworthiness. Now watch this absolutely beautiful scene. Isaiah feels unworthy. He's seen the the Savior, but he's a man of unclean lips. Then flew one of the seraphim. That's just a fancy word for an angel. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. Okay, don't read that. See it. Why would there be an altar in heaven? There's an altar there because we've just offered a sacrifice. Now, why does the angel need tongs? Because the coal is hot. So we have just barely offered an offering on an altar in heaven. What could we possibly be describing? Do you see it yet? We just laid Jesus, Jehovah, on an altar and sacrificed him. And the atonement is hot. And an angel picks up a little piece of the atonement with tongs because it's hot. And he flies to Isaiah. Now, where's the angel going to put the coal? Do you remember what Isaiah used to symbolize his unworthiness? His lips. And the angel takes the coal, which is hot, and lays it right on the lips of Isaiah and says, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is perched. Now, do you see the beauty of that? The angel picked up a little piece of the atonement, 
and laid it on Isaiah and cleansed him. And the idea here is if you will just let any little piece of the atonement into your life, if you will let the atonement in, it will cleanse you. Lo, this hath touched your lips and you are clean. Now you're going to, you can miss that so easily if you don't pause and read it. An angel coming with tongs and a hot coal, unless you pause and say, now wait a minute, why would there be an altar in heaven and why would it be hot? This is the atonement of the Savior. And anything that it touches is purified and cleansed from sin. Then the next beautiful scene is, as soon as Isaiah has been cleansed, this question is asked, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Now, clearly, that's a reference to Jesus in the premortal life, who will be our Messiah. But it's also a plea to Isaiah. Okay, now that you've been cleansed, Who will go and serve the Lord? Who will go to Mexico City and serve the Lord? Who will go to Ecuador? And notice how quickly Isaiah's hand shoots up and says, here am I, send me. And I can't help but connect those two. The best way to invite anyone to serve the Lord is when they are touched by the atonement. So if you're a parent out there and you've got a son or a daughter coming of missionary age and you'd love them to respond to the mission call like Isaiah responded here, here am I, send me, then the key is to get a little piece of the atonement into their life. And people will do things for Jesus they won't do for anyone else. And once they've been touched by the atonement and someone says, hey, will you go to Mexico City and serve a mission? You bet, here am I. And the hand shoots up as fast as it can because they've been touched by the atonement. But a young man or a young woman who's never been cleansed by the atonement, there isn't that quick response like you get when you've been cleansed by the atonement. I just think that's such a beautiful moment there. It's beautiful. I would say this, Bryce, if somebody said, you got to teach all of Isaiah, and you have two minutes or three minutes. I have one chapter. I would read this chapter because there's the temple in heaven and the temple on earth is a model of it. So if he's on earth or if he's in heaven, I don't care because he sees Christ. He sees the throne. And the smoke to me tells me he's right there before the veil. He's right there before the holy place and he can see the Lord. His sins purged in seven. The council language in verse eight is beautiful. Who will go for us? Clearly, Isaiah lives in a time period where they understand the gods. They get that there's divine beings. And then the question, how long? Verse 11, how long do I have to serve? And I love the Lord's answer. Well, till the cities are wasted and the houses are without man and the land is desolate. For the Lord has removed men far away, for there shall be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Essentially, Isaiah, it's going to cost everything. You either go save everyone or keep preaching until no one, absolutely no one will listen to you. I love the verse in section 123 where it says we should waste and wear out our lives in proclaiming Jesus. And I just think that's beautiful. And I love verse 10 because this is what Isaiah is supposed to do. This is what all of us are supposed to do. Now, he kind of does it in a negative, but turn it into a positive. He says in verse 10, go make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their ears lest they. In other words, if they would hear what you have to say, Isaiah, this is beautiful language and you're going to find this theme all throughout the whole scriptures. This is the invitation from God. See with your eyes, hear with your ears, 
understand with your heart, be converted, and be healed. And that's exactly what the gospel is supposed to do. If you could just pinpoint one simple verse and says, this is what all of us as individuals are supposed to do. This is why the Savior came. This is why there is a gospel and a church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's so we can help people see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, be converted, and be healed. It's the gospel. That's the gospel right there. The, The writer of Matthew 13 takes basically verse 10 and flips it and puts the onus on us, the listener. So this is Matthew 13, 13 says, Therefore speak I to them in parables, the Savior says, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which said, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, but shall not perceive. For this people's heart is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And I just want to just share my experience with this. I think this is a journey. I think this is something where careful reading takes time, and it's a blessing to have that time. And if you have it, you know, you're blessed. And it's okay if it doesn't all make sense at once. But I really do believe verse 10 is the gospel. And I really love verse 13. And it's kind of clunky, but here it is. This is um, verse 13 of 2 Nephi 16, Isaiah 6, 13 says, But yet there shall be a tenth, and they shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. That is a very difficult verse, but big picture, what Isaiah is being told is that even though there's going to be rejection, even though these people are going to be decimated, the temple's going to be destroyed, multiple times the Jews are going to be scattered, Nephi's people are going to be destroyed. Many of you probably have children, some of them have strayed, but the message is that they'll return, even when it looks wasted. And we'll see this later when we see the rod and the root and the stem and all that stuff, but big picture, it's going to be okay. Like I said, if we only had a couple minutes to do Isaiah, I would say this is a microcosm of everything that he's doing. Just a a sacred moment, if I can just throw this one in. If you will enlist in helping Jesus and go try and do what Isaiah's doing and preach the gospel, you will be wounded. You're going to take your legs. It's difficult work. It is going to be challenging. And if you do that, you will need healing. Not just the people you're converting, but you will need healing. Jesus was wounded for me, and he has nail marks in his hands. And symbolically, as I work for Jesus, it's like getting nail marks in my hands. And someday, he's going to reach for me, and I'm going to grab his hand, and that will put those two nail marks together. His nail marks, where he was wounded for me, and my nail marks where I was wounded for him, and he will pull me close to him and heal me. Everything we have to endure in the cause of truth, everything that we give up for him, he will heal. Every challenge that we face, going on a mission, eating strange food in a strange culture, whatever we do in his service, verse 10 applies to us. Because you see with your eyes, and you hear with your ears, and you understand with your heart, 
and you are converted. Everything that we suffer in the cause of righteousness and truth will be turned into a blessing and a healing when he pulls us close. And so it's, it's more than just they are healed. We are healed as well. I like that. Make it personal. Now, before we close, I just want to go back to 2 Nephi 12, 13, and 14 and look at a little bit of the things that Isaiah is talking about in these chapters that give us hope. 2 Nephi 12, 13, and 14 are coming from the brass plates from what we have today in our Bibles as Isaiah 2, 3, and 4. And Isaiah 3, or 2 Nephi 13, is this message of punishment and warning, and yet it's sandwiched between two messages of hope. And the messages of hope are really encapsulated in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 4, where, for example, in Isaiah 2, we have this message that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established in the tops of the mountains. You see, this king, this messianic king, is going to have such an effect on the world as to create a space where people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and we won't have war anymore. That's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, or 2 Nephi 12, verse 4. It's a great message of hope, and we see this also in Isaiah 4. We read that the Lord will wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and he will create a space where every dwelling place will have a defense. That's 2 Nephi 14, verse 5. A time when there's a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and a place of refuge and a cover from the storm. And so Isaiah really does have this vision where, yes, bad things are going to happen. He sees this. He sees the scattering of Israel. He sees the destruction of the temple, but he also sees the redemption of Zion and the ultimate triumph of God because of Christ in his message and his mission and because there's people that believe in him and will have faith in him and follow him the Lord knows the end from the beginning. And on his timetable, everything will be made right. And everything will be, as it says in Isaiah 4 verse 3, everything will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. And so I really want to end on that note, that God sees the end from the beginning and that The Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies protection and defense. And with that, we'll see you next week when we talk about 2 Nephi chapters 20 through 25. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.